Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So, welcome everyone who joined us. Um, this chapter is called the Bhikkhu Vaga. Bhikkhu is a, um, uh, traditionally it's a, it's a monk, a bhikkhuni would be a nun who has taken vows. But in a general way, this chapter is about um, those of us that actually developed the Dhamma and the great benefits uh, of doing so. Uh, this really is a beautiful chapter. Um, The, 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 I was thinking about two different things. The reference to a disciple often has religious connotations. In other words, we've taken certain vows or certain commitments. But the, the, the word disciple simply refers to someone who is practicing a discipline. And so the discipline that we're practicing as disciples, we're disciples of the Dhamma. You're not, I'm making a point. You're not the disciples of the Buddha. You're not a disciple of John Haspel. You're a disciple of the Dhamma. You're practicing that discipline. The Buddha's words... Good is restraint over the eye. Good is restraint over the ears. Good is restraint over the nose. Good is restraint over the tongue. Good is restraint in the body. Good is restraint in speech. Good is restraint in thought. Restraint is always good. The disciple, well restrained, is free of all suffering. That's the whole point of the Dhamma. That's why you hear me referring often that the Dhamma is practiced in this moment as life occurs while we're practicing mindful, wise restraint. Meaning we're recognizing and immediately abandoning those things that we know are rooted in ignorance. And we're only living, we've restrained ourselves to the point where we're living within the framework of the Eightfold Path. And that might seem even unattainable or um, even, even easily misunderstood, but that's what Dhamma practice is about, developing that framework of the Eightfold Path so that it becomes your moment-by-moment life. That's an establishment in right view or developing right view. The Dhamma practitioner, in control of the sixth sense base, what the Buddha was just referring to, delights in developing the Dhamma. So you know you've turned a corner in the Dhamma when you are delighting. That's another word for that that I often use, is rapture, uh, joyful, joyful engagement with the Dhamma. We understand the benefits. We're not doing it out of some kind of um, uh, stoic purpose or grim determination. And that, usually that, that, that's what gets us going in the beginning, is some grim determination and maybe even a stoic uh, approach to the Dhamma. But rather quickly, if we're practicing the Dhamma in according, accordance with the Dhamma, we'll realize what we're getting. And this chapter points that out. This is what you get. This is what... The, the wise disciple is able to develop in their life. They are, stable, they are established in jhana, free of worldly entanglements, content. This one is called wise indeed. The disciple, restrained in speech, moderate and unassuming, explains the Dhamma with wisdom and understanding. Their words are always skillful. It's another way to, to recognize, uh, in general, where you are in your Dhamma practice by 
excuse me, about being mindful of the word. And a sneeze. Mm-hmm. <coughs> <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Usually I have three. <coughs> well, not this time. Impermanence has intervened, even my sneezing pattern. Um, their words are always skillful. We understand and we recognize when we're off the beam by... Excuse me. Here's the third one. Oh, so much for impermanence. Um, many of us recognize... Or start incorporating the Dhamma by recognizing our speech. It's usually one of the first things that a Dhamma practitioner is able to focus on. That my speech is, is somehow not in accordance with right speech. It's aggressive, it's gossipy, it's focused on idle chatter, uh, it's dishonest, uh, it's hurtful towards ourselves and others. It's simply by recognizing that that we're able to start adjusting the way that we behave. But there's also an aspect of speech that is so important, and that's the inner dialogue that we have going on with ourselves. And that's ultimately where the Dhamma resides, is in that, that uh, inner dialogue. Excuse me. The disciple, established in Dhamma, who delights in the Dhamma, well concentrated, who hears the authentic Dhamma, there's a caveat there, you have to hear it, it has to be authentic, will not lose their way. So you want to know how to not lose your way, be established in the Dhamma, delight in the Dhamma, become well concentrated and hear authentic Dhamma. The disciple is free of bitterness for what others receive. Those who despise the gains of others will never develop jhana. That, that aspect of envy that, that is so hurtful to all of us. And obviously the Buddha is pointing out the three defilements in that one sentence. It's greed and aversion rooted in deluded thinking that would that would even allow me to despise someone else because of the benefits they've developed in their own life. Yet, we human beings do that almost as a matter of consequence, don't we? Even the most altruistic people will fall into that trap of they don't deserve it, or why not me? In fact, a lot of people take up altruistic pursuits just because of that thought, that they think that there's something wrong with them, and by proving how good they are to others, they can improve the goodness of themselves. But if that's your intention, the intention is rooted in ignorance of four noble truths and will always bring stress. The disciple, now content with what they have, that what they have received, even very little, pure in livelihood and persistent in their right effort, is praised by wise beings. And what a nice way to live your life, being able to live with little rather than more all the time. Those free of clinging to sensual attainments, free of regret over what is not, they are truly known as a disciple. Again, with just marvelous words. Whether you're in the Dhamma or not, it's just a skillful way to live your life, isn't it? Not always thinking about what you don't have. The disciple, virtuous, well-concentrated, devoted to the Dhamma, will attain the peace of Nibbana and the pure joy of the cessation of all conditioned things. Nibbana just refers to the... Nibbana literally means <coughs> extinguish or putting the fire out, as in putting out the fires of passion, of self-centered behavior. An empty boat sails effortlessly, empty of greed, aversion, and empty of ignorance. This disciple will gain final release from all, excuse me, all views ignorant of four noble truths. 
Uproot the five lower feathers. Abandon the five higher feathers. Conquer the five bonds. Cultivate the five pure qualities. The, this disciple crosses to the far shore. And I just want to read what they are, and I don't want to go by my memory because I'll probably miss it if I can find it. I got it here. The five lower fetters to be uprooted by the disciple are delusion, doubt, belief in rites and rituals, and ill will. The five higher fetters to, fetters to be abandoned are craving for imaginary and speculative self-establishment in non-physical realms, whether heavenly or or um, whether heavenly or not. Conceit, restlessness, and ongoing ignorance of four noble truths. The five bonds to be conquered are greed, aversion, delusion, ignorant views, and continued self-identification with impermanent and fabricated objects, events, views, and ideas. All of that, you can see, is rooted in the speculative view of yourself or trying to create something out of yourself. Remember the Buddha said, the Buddha used the word anatta to describe a misunderstanding of self. And he usually described that ongoing process as because of a misunderstanding of self, we become anything other than self including trying to establish ourselves in non-earthly realms, in non-physical realms. That's rooted in the, in the, in the belief of uh, a need for salvation or escape from ourselves, literally, from this life. It's the only reason we would grasp after something beyond this moment. And yet almost every religion, every spiritual discipline, every New Age idea is based on escape from a human life or a different type of human life. It's not possible for human beings. All rooted in what the Buddha is describing here. Anytime we try to become something other than self, we're in trouble. We're going to create stress and suffering for ourselves. Establish jhana, the Buddha asks. Do not be mindless. Do not be distracted by sensual pleasures. Mindless. Mindless, do not swallow a red-hot ball or you will cry out, this is painful. Living in ignorance is like swallowing a red-hot ball. There is no jhana for those who lack insight. There is no insight for the, those lacking concentration. Those established in jhana, developing insight, they are close to nibbana, close to release indeed. The disciple who has established seclusion and calm, who understands the dhamma with true insight, is delighted, a delight that transcends all ordinary delights. What are we gaining insight into? The three marks of existence, the impermanence of all things, the, uh, the misunderstanding of self, anatta, and the resulting stress and suffering, dukkha, that follows from the first two. The disciple who has gained insight into the arising and passing away of the five clinging aggregates is full of joy. What are the five clinging aggregates are form, feeling, perceptions, Mental fabrications and concentration, mental fabrications and concentration, or ongoing thinking, rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. Those five clinging aggregates are simply the Buddha's description of ongoing personal stress and suffering. The five clinging aggregates. So the implication is that through the development of the Dhamma, we abandon the five clinging aggregates. 
we abandon identifying with our form first, then our feelings, my feelings are me, the perceptions that are formed by those feelings that become the mental constructs, the, the fabrications that we live our lives by, and maintain that fabricated self within, within ongoing concentration. So again, it's important to point out, when we're talking about concentration in the Dhamma, we're not talking about uh, concentration uh, as some kind of grass, uh, vast cosmic attainment. It's simply a well-focused concentration within the fr framework of the Dhamma. Restraint at the sixth sense base, content, pure and helpful in the Sangha, this is the foundation of a life well integrated with the heartwood. And each and every one of us contribute to the saga. That's one of the reasons why we run our classes this way, so you all can participate and realize and have the direct experience of your own responsibility in your awakening process, but also to each other. And we really do that in a, in a way I've never seen it anywhere, in, in any temple or any, any type of practice outside of this one. The disciple associates with noble friends. They are enthused with the pure life. They are cordial and refined with others. Joyful in the Dhamma, they will end in ignorance. The Buddha is pointing out the importance of wise associations in all of our aspects of our life, but particularly in Dhamma practice. As the jasmine creeper sheds withered flowers, the disciple sheds greed and aversion. I love that because it's telling us there's nothing that I have to do that's impossible for me to, to, to attain. Like a jasmine creeper, all I have to do is participate and the flowers of my discontent will simply fall away due to my participation in authentic dhamma. The disciple, restrained in thought, word, and deed, composed, disentangled from the world, is truly a sage of peace. The disciple must examine and censure themselves. Well restrained, this one lives in happiness. One is one's own protector, one's own refuge. The disciple controls themselves as a horseman controls their steed. Full of joy and conviction in the Dhamma, the disciple attains the peace of cessation of all conditioned things. Meaning at that point you are simply a reference point to what's occurring in your life. You are present for each and every moment of your life. And that is the reward of having a human life, to actually be present for it. Rather than always grasping after what we think we need or, or being mindful of what we think we need to avoid. That, it, that does not allow one to live in the present moment. The disciple who devote, devotes themselves to the Dhamma throughout their life illuminates the world like a full moon on a clear night. The disciple who devotes themselves to the Dhamma throughout their life illuminates the world like a full moon on a clear night. That's why I say the most loving thing I can do for myself and for all other sentient beings is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. Because at least in that way, I know I'm longer, no longer contributing to the dukkha in the world and perhaps I can be a little bit of an illumination for others. That's true compassion married with wisdom. And that's why I say that often. If we really do care about ourselves and other human beings, and most every human being does, by the way. It takes a true psychopath to not be concerned about other people. And that's very, very rare in the world. I'm not just talking about someone who developed antisocial behavior. Most human beings really care about each other. But they don't know how to go about it because they're not caring for themselves. In order for me to care for you, 
I have to first care for myself. It makes sense, doesn't it? In fact, it makes, you could almost say it makes utter sense. Why don't we do it? Because we're stuck in a view of self that doesn't allow for that. We're stuck in anatta. We've created a self that is anything other than self and we're, we are bound to keep that going until we recognize what we've done to ourselves and let it go. And then we can... And the goal isn't to illuminate the world. The goal of the Dhamma is to illuminate myself. But in that way, then I can present that to other people. So that's today's class. Um, let's go online. We usually do that uh, first. Jeff, how are you this morning? Hello, John. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Uh, as usual, I'm overcome with too many thoughts here. Um, <laughs> with irony, I think I'll opt for wise restraint and <laughs> remain silent, at least for the short term here. Thank you, Jeff. Glad you joined us. Jen, how are you this morning? I know you will. I talked to you earlier. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Um, I am... Um, thank you for the teaching, John. I'm... I'm... Uh, interested in... Uh, looking at the subtle difference between the teachings in this chapter and the teachings in the next chapter, which is what I'm going to be teaching next class. So that's where my brain is right now. So I think I'm going to go with Noble Silence as well. Thank you, Jen. Yeah, Jen will be teaching our final class in this series uh, this coming Tuesday. I'm looking forward to that. Thanks, Jen. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, John. Good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, the... The, the concept of restraint and just got me thinking on the other I was, I was never overly religious or spiritual and it, it always seemed like those were things that were trying to gain something and exerting yourself to get something and even if you went the other way with atheism or the scientific method you were still trying to gain knowledge and intellectualism and and this whole thing flips that on its head where it's like no you don't you don't need any of that just pull back, let it go, and then you, you get that, you get what you want by letting it all go. It's, yeah. it, the, the counterintuitiveness of it is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> the great paradox, you know? It is. It's a fantastic paradox. I guess just in general, the whole the whole lot of it's a paradox. Yeah, it is. Um, which is pretty cool. Thank you. It is. Thank you. You, you reminded me. I remember... Um, I mean, I, I've always been, my thinking has always been kind of contrary to no matter what, whatever is presented. But I remember when I was learning, I was brought up Roman Catholic and learning the idea of heaven. And it it seemed like such an awful thing to it for me. to. And I remember asking, and I shouldn't have asked a nun this, but I asked, um, I asked her about heaven. She says, in, in heaven you sit forever and ever, you sit at the right hand of God. And I remember, so I was about eight years old, I think, nine years old, I said, that sounds like the most boring thing I could imagine. <laughs> it wasn't a, but I, I felt that way forever. I mean, why would I want to sit at the right hand? That even if somebody as cool as God, I don't want to sit at their right hand. You know, I mean, it's, and, and, and I, it sounds even silly now. It sounds childish, 
but it's how it's presented, isn't it? We're always grasping after something that seems to resolve in a lack of me. And I, it, that always bothered me until I came to what the Buddha taught. And I realized, why would I want to be anything other than me? And, I, I, and you know, I had, I had lived a bit of a life by then. So I knew that I wasn't perfect. I had uh, been through alcoholism and drug addiction and a few other difficulties. So I knew I was not a perfect human being. But when I finally understood what the Buddha was teaching, it was such a relief that I could just be what I am. Just, and that is, that's the ultimate liberation, isn't it? To, in this moment, to know who we are and to accept it completely without any reservation, without any need for me to be any different or for you to be any different or for the world to be any different, that's why it's restraint. It's just saying, this is it. This is good enough. And it's good enough because it's what's occurring. Mary, good morning. Good morning, good morning, everyone. Um, it's really a reminder that the, um, you know, that it is the middle way, right? So there are extremes this way, extremes that way. And even with this practice, you can take it to the extreme. And it really is, um, it really is wise restraint. Um, which isn't, you know, tight or clenched. It's um, comfortable um, in the Dhamma and, and present. And it has its own reward in, in the moments of knowing that you're present with wise restraint and you're not at either extreme. Um, so thank you for the teaching, John. Thank you, Mary. Good morning, John. Good morning, John. Um, thank you. This is, uh, Jeff said something, uh, overcome with too many thoughts. And that's what I am. Uh, but I will say, um, you mentioned earlier at the beginning, a stoic determination at the beginning of this practice, which is where I'm at. And um, uh, I had an episode last week where I was able to observe in myself, which I guess is a good thing, uh, although I felt terrible, uh, just how entangled in the fabrications of what we create are. It's a good thing. Um, with envy, I, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked at what I observed in myself and, um, and the suffering that that caused. And we still, as a beginner, we still go through this where, uh, we're looking to escape from, you know, our lives. We don't know what to do. Yeah. And I have to constantly remind myself or I have to, what seems here is to, to bring it into every moment as it goes by because yeah. our, our next breath is not guaranteed. And so this is it. Yeah. But it takes practice. And um, uh, it's, um, it's just... That this was very interesting, and uh, that observation I had of, of myself last week, I hope shows that I'm, I'm learning something from this. I know I am, but it's uh, it's tough. There are a lot of thoughts, so I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Johnny. Well put, um, very honest, and this is just what Dharma practice is like. There's a lot. Um, it, it's very simple and basic. The the actual practice itself, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. But there's a lot of supporting material that we um, that we work our way through as we develop the Dhamma. But that's that's just how we do it. 
Um, you know, I should point out that the, the egregious things that I did in my life, I didn't just um, come across a Dharma and say, okay, now, you know, everything, I didn't expunge my past. So it was an important part of my own development to go back and at least apologize for the hurt that I did to other people. I mean, in a practical, direct, face-to-face -face way, saying, I know what I did, I know it was wrong, I hope I never act that way again. That's as important as anything else. So the Dhamma doesn't take us, it's not an escape from even our own responsibilities to things. So, And it's important to say that. That's a very, um, I mean, anybody that's ever sincerely apologized know how, how freeing that is. And if we're not willing to do it, that's an aspect of clinging, isn't it? You know, and it's a, it's a powerful thing that we, we can give ourselves by simply acknowledging our wrongs in the right context. Um, I'm hesitant to say, if any of you um, want to do that but are having difficulty, please contact me. There's some strategies that you can employ if you're having a real difficult time in doing so uh, that work very well. So, thank you, John. Um, let's start with, with Becky. Good morning, Becky. Good morning, everyone. Um, well, I'm in, the, I'm in the same place as everyone else who's just made a comment. It's just that this, this, uh, this chapter is so all-encompassing. Really, everything is there. And as you go through it, you almost start to, uh, what's the word, sort of take the Dhamma apart and put it back together again. And it makes you kind of see the places where you're still not sure or you're still not able to comprehend because you haven't, maybe you haven't experienced enough of 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 the everyday I, I don't I don't know it's hard to, hard to describe but it's it's really a complete circle of the Dhamma this yeah. this chapter yeah. and um, makes you realize where you are how far you've come and what <coughs> you need to do Further. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and that's just all of that is just kind of rumbling around in my head so <laughs> well, thank you that's where I am. thank you thank you for the rumble it, it, it's a uh, you know it, look at where this chapter comes in the in the 26 chapters it's right at the end right. and it is a synopsis of what we can expect if we develop the Dhamma you know and the Buddha used this uh, teaching method often one of the most famous suttas the Anapanasati Sutta is just that it's a, it's a rather long and important sutta that is a description of well-focused, well-practiced Dhamma. It, it also makes you very thankful because of the, of the remembrance that it brings yeah. that, you, that you have the Dhamma. Yeah, and this is what you can expect by doing it. Uh, I want to I go to Lauren because Lauren has to leave in 15 oh. minutes. So will give you a chance. Thank you. Good Thank morning, you so Lauren. much for this teaching. So beautiful. I keep imagining in my head the jasmine creeper and the yeah. flowers of aversion and greed falling. Mm -hmm. and um, It feels um, very simple, but at the same time, 
all-encompassing yeah. and complicated <laughs> too but um overall yeah just the comfort of knowing that you can be your full self rather than clinging to this prison of you know not so yeah yeah it's like you know everyone creates this this prison that we're all stuck inside yeah. and and i i was again so many thoughts but one thing that I wanted to share was it's so nice to be in the presence of so many people that are trying to free themselves of those prisons. So I'm so grateful for being part of this song. It's so beautiful. And um, I'll just end it there. Thank you so much, that's, Sean. That's wonderful. Thank you. I, I, I feel the same way. I feel it. It might sound crazy coming from me, but I feel so honored and, and fortunate to be a part of your sangha. And I am. I, I'm, I'm just as much a part of your sangha as you are. You know, there's, there's, it's not just me, it's not just our teachers, it's all of us that make this a vibrant and uh, well-focused sangha. Uh, I'm so glad you're a part of it. Let's go to Dustin. Dustin, good morning. Good morning, John. Um, I was also brought up Roman Catholic. I'm sorry. No, I shouldn't say that. I'm, just, I'm kidding. I really am kidding. I, yeah. My parents and our family lived a great Catholic life. I got no complaints. Yeah, they offered us mansions when we went to heaven. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were teaching us clinging, yep. you know, from the beginning. Be in my um, father's mansion. Yeah, 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 pearly gates and all of that. Yeah, I forgot the pearly gates. That was pretty cool. <laughs> How did I give up on that? Yeah, and it always felt false to me. That yeah. that, that never, that was, I was young and just, you know, in, in church having to kneel and stand. And yep. they were speaking Latin, and I was like, nobody yep. understands what you're saying. So yep. it was a real farce, I thought. Um, and I did the same thing like you talk about I searched through all the new age teachings and they all said the same thing it was always something you know you're going to get these powers you know this new dimension is going to come on this date or you know it was always this future promise Mm -hmm. but since I've just been doing the jhana meditation and paying attention to that internal quality of my mind that voice that's when I've noticed all the stuff falling away yeah. and the entanglement and the, you know, I think John was saying that, like noticing how much you're creating suffering by listening to that voice, yeah. you know, yeah. and not even knowing that that voice is actually mm-hmm. speaking constantly and telling you, you know, reminding you how bad you are or, you know, yeah. that's what freed me is just realizing the quality of that voice and that that voice I can come back to the breath yeah. and that voice has started to silence that's, that's outstanding they, they that uh, to recognize that that inner voice that inner dialogue is really the problem and that we can that we have a choice over how much control that has and that choice is me you know it's up to me if i'm going to follow what was that that there's a saying about the good wolf and the bad wolf or something like that I can't remember it exactly, but it's pretty good. Which wolf are we going to listen to, the good one or the bad one? You know, and the good one would be focused on the Dhamma. But there's such a strong conditioning to to keep grasping uh, after something or away from something that it's so hard to do. But Lauren mentioned complicated. The Dhamma itself is very simple. It's our minds that are complicated. And that's also a very powerful strategy that the mind rooted in ignorance will continue to employ to maintain its ignorance, saying, oh, this is just too complicated. It's too hard. There's too many words. But notice how we've said that a few times. There's a lot of words here. But we're staying present <coughs> with it. And that's that's a significant difference, to be able to do that. So thank you, Dustin. Thank you. Erica? Aaron. 
Aaron, I'm sorry. You, you were so close. I know, but now that it's stuck, I'm probably going to call you Erica a few more times. <laughs> Would fine. you mind changing your name? Because I don't want to be wrong. Can we put K? Could it be K? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Good morning, Aaron. I'm glad you're here. Good morning. Thank you, Um, I was thinking about the Jasmine Creeper, too, and, and just the the difference of the... the I, I like the metaphor because it involves... It, it implies the creeper continues to grow. Yeah. And so you don't stop. You have to continue to, sh- to let the, the dead petals fall away. But I was thinking about the difference of the, of the wording, some people saying letting go versus falling away. Yeah. Letting, it go, letting go implies so much more choice and control than just falling away. Yeah. And, and that kind of encompassing the uh, going through the world, letting things fall away versus having to make the decision to let them go. So thank you for the teaching. That's great insight, Aaron. That really mm-hmm. is. And there's a significant difference between the two, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Letting go and falling away. Mm-hmm. Thanks for seeing that and bringing it up. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, John. <clears throat> thank you for that. Thank you, for everyone, for all your really insightful comments on this. On this, uh, um, so they really sort of clarified a lot for me. Like Mary, I, the idea of um, a subtle understanding of restraint really resonated with me. Um, but what I want to say, but it didn't really come clear until what Aaron just said um, about uh, the restraint being a, a, a conscious letting go, rather like a, a struggle, um, you know, to hold yourself in, in some place or something that, that's hard. It's actually easy. Um, it's not a, uh, it's, it's an easier way rather than, than the grasping or clinging to things. Yeah. The letting go. So thank you all for that. For your insights, very helpful to me. Thank you, Adam. Kevin? Good morning, Eric. This um, teaching is just amazing where it's placed. This and the, the next one are just, uh, it's really the culmination of the Dhamma and the teaching, and it sums it all up. And I really appreciate every, all the insights that everyone has brought to, like everyone else has. Um, it's interesting, it's addressed to, you know, monks and nuns. And, you know, for a long time, I sort of crave that, thinking, oh, if I had the monastic life, it would be so much better, it would be so much easier. And in a, in a way, that's that works. not really realistic at all. And this teaching teaches us that you don't have to be in monastic life. You don't have to have, you know, completely give everything, everything away, even though you, in a sense, are giving it away. If you're... Yeah. But, you know, it's, you know, the disciple established in the Dhamma, who delights in the Dhamma, well concentrated, who hears the authentic Dhamma, will not lose their way. So it just gives us the path, and we can carry the path even if we are householders and if we are, quote, entangled with our families and our lives, we can still follow the path. Yeah. It, it, again, it's, it's such an important point. Thank you, Kevin. The, the Buddha didn't just teach monks and nuns, those that were uh, living with him. Uh, he taught anyone and everyone that was interested. And many of the people that awakened during the Buddha's lifetime, and there were you know, thousands, were householders, were people living a normal life. Uh, he never intended his Dhamma to be just for monastics. You know, It really is an egalitarian, equalitarian, I like to say. Thank you. Um... Where are we? Laura. I, I just want to say, I, I may lose the battery on my uh, on the connection here, so we may lose the Zoom connection. Uh, 
but I hooked it up and maybe it'll work. So we'll see. Uh, if I lose you, I lose you. <laughs> Good morning, Laura. Good morning, John. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure listening to everyone. And um, as everyone else was saying, there's a lot to think about. And it is, sim like Lauren said, simple yet complicated. And um, I guess at the end, I remember you were talking about illumination because that kind of comes up a lot for me, like grasping after different, you know, religious practices that I've tried, but the goal here is not so much to like evangelize others or, yeah. you know, prove to others that we're something good or, you know, righteous or um, maybe for other people that might work, I guess, not to, you know, judge others who practice other religions, but I mean, I too grew up Roman Catholic, and my, my parents are are uh, raised that way, and they're beautiful people, yeah. but I've noticed that even, you know, trying all these different religions is, is the only thing that really helps me in the sense of taking my own accountability and having that inner dialogue with myself, mm -hmm. not going to a priest for confession or, you know, trying to... I don't know, improve myself. This is really the only thing that, you know, makes sense. Yeah. So it's helpful. Yeah, again, thank you, Laura. It's, it's great. I, re I remember even the idea, this was later, like in my mid-teens, um, the idea of confession just seemed like the only time I ever talk to a priest is when I'm talking about how bad I am. And it just, yeah. you know, the things that I did wrong. And it, again, I didn't really understood, understand why it bothered me, yeah. but it sure bothered me. I mean, I, had, I developed friends with a couple of the local parish priests, but, you know, it was really just my interaction is based on how bad I am. And I was taught, you know, you were born with original sin. Like, what the hell is that? What, mm -hmm. what do you mean? But <clears throat> there it was, you know. And, it, and again, it, that just reinforces people's self-loathing to be taught that. Uh, again, I'm not going against religion and all that stuff, but it, it certainly wasn't for me, and it didn't make any sense. And, so those are all, in a way, just fabrications, and yeah, it's like it's confusing because it's like who are we, and we're clinging to identities. Like, but like again, I was talking about it with Matt and uh, Dustin the other night. Like, I guess it's this idea of the not self. Like, I have a perception of myself. You have a perception of me and someone else and it's like do we really need to identify oh. with anything like yeah that's right it's you know we create these narratives and stories about ourselves and yeah. none of it's really true in a way you know? no it's again it's, a, it's such a, a, a deep understanding why do we have to identify with anything and we do it to ourselves and we do it about other people mm -hmm. usually when we first see someone we we identify them through an association to what we think they are I mean, look at look at the problem with race in the world today. I mean, that's just a, a glaring example of that, isn't it? But we do it all the time. The way people look, the way they hold themselves, the clothes they wear, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's a great question to ask. Why do, we, why do we do that? We do it because we're ignorant of the way things are. If we understand four noble truths, we'd be at peace with ourselves because we understand ourselves, and we'd be at peace with everyone in the world because we understand what goes on in the world. So when somebody or a group of people do, do, does something that is so hurtful, we understand where it comes from. We don't have to blame them anymore. 
and maybe we can actually get to the root causes of some of the issues. But in the meantime, I get to wake up and live in it with a conflict-free mind, no matter what's occurring in the world. And that's the whole point. Again, it's not to be to save the world. The Buddha understood this too. It's just for people with a speck of dust in their eyes, those that are actually interested and can take joyful engagement with it and mm-hmm. develop it. Thank you. Good morning, Andrew. Always a pleasure to see you. Mm-hmm. Good morning. And John, for me, it's noble silence. Thank you. Glad you joined us. Good morning, Brett. Good to be here. <clears throat> Thanks for your teaching. Um, See you, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Everybody's, and everybody's comments. And uh, you said something after the uh, sutta was uh, clinging to things is just always results in lack of self. And uh, you can just really see that as soon as you start clinging to something. Or I can. Yeah. Um, so it's good to hear that. And... Uh, just practicing right speech is so much in there that uh, when you speak that your 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 mind picks up. So uh, good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I always put you on the spot, or often put you on the spot, and I will again. Have you noticed that your right speech, as as it applies to self talk, has changed? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like gradually, I was talking about it last night and uh, there, and uh, so it, with Erica. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so gradually over the last year, like two years, I think, you just, as you talk and you don't identify, when you're talking, you're, you have right speech, you're not kind of, the tape doesn't play as well, like you're not identifying with what you yeah. were talking about before. Yeah. So you see, it's a lot lighter. Yeah, thank you for, Thanks. sorry for putting you on the spot, but I've noticed that in our conversations. Yeah. That's why I asked that, so. Good morning, Nina. Good, Good to morning. see you. Um, kind of similar to what you just said. I've, I can feel myself this week like dancing in between the second and a third noble truth. And um, more specifically, now that I sit here and I'm staring at the list of the five clinging aggregates, but more self-aware of the mental fabrications and luckily I have a piece of the sangha that I have with me usually every day but um, reminded that how much of the mental fabrications are just these phantom experiences that you create and then um, attach a feeling to and as stressors come up I'm really seeing that happening like identifying them as clinging and letting it go but also letting it fall away just super aware of that this week in experiences as it's happening thank you that that excuse me that's dhamma practice yeah that's wise restraint in this moment that allows us to let go or let things fall away again you're developing a dhamma as it's intended and you're you're reaping the benefits of it and you're also as this chapter said you're able to describe it yeah i think um I haven't had specific experiences where I've been able to put it to practice, but I have this week, and I could really see it working. Yeah. Yeah. It Good was for amazing. you. Yeah. And thank you for bringing it here for all of us. So thank you all for that. It really is. The, the level of, uh, of um, I was going to say honesty, but I was, actually I think it's more like the, the, the safety we all feel within our sangha. You know, it's really remarkable. But I think it's because we're, I know it's because we're focused on one thing. We're focused on reality of the Dhamma. It works.
well, carries life is us hard all right through. Now. Pardon me? I said, and life is hard right now. Yeah, it's hard the for everyone. Hard right but the, the, the life was just as difficult during the Buddhist time as it was now. There really is no substantive difference except communication. The, the conditions of the world. Oh. I'm going to lose you all. We're almost done with class, so you're not going to. I'll leave it going until uh, it clicks out, but. Uh, you're only going to miss Ram and David, so who cares about that anyway? <laughs> Thank you, Nina. Good morning, Ram. Speak quickly. Uh, yeah, the, um, the stanza that, that uh, Kevin brought up, uh, <clears throat> the disciple establishing the Dhamma, uh, the lights in the Dharma, well concentrated, here's the Dhamma, will not lose their way. Um, there's a story connected with that. Uh, I haven't really found the sutta that it goes back to, but it's a really telling one, uh, where in the last days of the Buddha's life, um, <clears throat> most of the bhikkhus that traveled with him would kind of glom around him and, and, and sit with him, um, except for one who decided that he would take to the Buddha's words and just do his practice. Yeah. Um, and he kind of got ratted out by his buddies, and they hauled him in front of the Buddha, and the Buddha said, no, you guys are all off the path. <laughs> this is the one who, who understands what, what I said, yep. and who actually practiced my, my teachings. So it's, uh, it, it's a, just a, a telling um, story of, of the what a teacher that he was. Yeah. That even while he's there dying in pain, he still managed to to uh, praise someone who actually gets it right. Yeah. As as a you know who actually was a, a true a true disciple. Yeah. And again, the, the, just the brilliance of the man and the simplicity of his practice. He, they were there because they felt they're going to lose him. What's going to happen to us? Mm-hmm. And he's saying. Yeah. Waiting for I don't. The I don't need that. Of wisdom to come out. Yeah, you need to practice the Dhamma like this. You know, the rest of this is just frivolous eye making on their part. That was, and it was it was what Laura brought up. That was their self identity with the Buddha, grasping to that that the Buddha stay permanent, when right in front of them he was fading away, he was falling away, and they 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 lost their minds over it, where one didn't. It was a perfect teaching example. So thank you for bringing that up, David. Talk quickly. We might just make it. <laughs> Matt said it Tuesday, and the Buddha said it 2,600 years ago, and I'll say it again. The most important gem of the triple gems is the Sangha. So I thank everyone. Yeah, it really is. It's remarkable. Um, I don't want to rush into this too much, but I would like to get this the Karaniya Metta Sutta in. But I just want to say uh, we're going to conclude on Tuesday with Jen's teaching the final class, and then we're going to finish out the year with six classes, I think, a small structured study on karma, rebirth, and intentional becoming. I think that's a nice, you'll see it's a nice way to kind of finish out the year. But it's been a remarkable year here. I mean, we've been, I've been teaching for over 10, 11, some years like that. And the Sangha has obviously been developing over that whole time. But in the past year, maybe two years, um, certainly in the past year, there's, there's been a, 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 I don't know, a, solidifying or something but it has to do with your all of your practice that is so committed and so rooted in the Dhamma so with a lack of distraction that it's it really is lifting us all up 
in Adama. So it's noticeable, it's palpable, and I appreciate it. We'll finish with metta as we always do. We might make it. The Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none dispute this let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class. Glad I got it in. hope I wasn't reading it too quickly. Peace, everyone. Peace. Be good. See you all soon. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, all. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.